We're in the midst of a sermon series on relationships. We've kind of talked about marriage and divorce and, and some of those things so far. And then we'll, we'll talk about other family relationships and then other even relationships with those around us uh, going forward. Um, but today we're going to kind of stop in the midst of that and talk about how understanding the gospel and understanding how the gospel changes us and changes our what we call position in Christ, meaning that because we are His, we now have a new relationship to God and the world. As we were just praying about it changes how we see and how we relate with those around us, with God and with with those around us. And so, because of that's true, as we come to understand the gospel more deeply, and we understand the effects of the fall upon us, we're able to actually love those around us. So today we're going to kind of step back and look at some of those foundational issues, that how understanding ourselves rightly and relating to ourselves rightly as believers affects how we relate and empowers us, in a sense, to relate rightly uh, to those around us. Um, and so that's where we're going to start today, and we're going to do that by looking um, and, and even our experience in the world will affect that too. So we're going to, look, we're going to see those things. Um, by, we're going to start by looking at Romans 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. So let's, uh, let's give great attention to the reading of the very Word of God. So we'll look at this, and then I'll, then I'll pray for us. All right, Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. All right, man, let me, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we come before you, we recognize that we're tempted to see things only from our perspective, from the, the perspective in which we are at in any given moment. But God, I pray today that you give us eyes to see things from your perspective, that no matter where we're at, no matter what's going on, you are at work in the lives of your children. So give us faith. God, we might repent of our sins and trust in Jesus and then live lives that are worthy of your righteousness. And where we don't, that we would repent and believe, but live in the confidence that you are with us. Uh, wherever we go, whatever we do, God, you are our Father and we are your children. We long to live lives that reflect the beauty of that relationship. So help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. God, uh, help us to be empowered in those things by seeing ourselves rightly as your children, uh, living under your rule and your authority. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So as we come to Romans chapter 5, we, you know, the first word here is therefore. So we know there's stuff that's gone before this. And what's gone before this is Paul has laid the foundation by talking about God's relationship with Abraham and how Abraham is a model, in a sense, for all of us, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. He wasn't saved by his works. He wasn't saved by his righteousness. He was saved because he believed the promise that God had given him, which was that God would provide salvation through his son, uh, ultimately through his line, as we understand that to be true, through the, the people of Abraham, Jesus came. 
Um, but that he would make his name great, he would be great in all the world, he would have a great uh, destiny and all those sorts of things. And so we know that's true. But the fulfillment of those things was ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's making the point here earlier that because of, of the faith, because of faith in Jesus, we are made right with God. It's not about being born into the family of Abraham or having righteousness that earns that, but it's simply by grace, through faith, we have been saved. And so he says that because of that, therefore, because that's true, since we have been justified by faith, that's the point he's just been making, we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel, rightly embraced and understood, believed, trusted in, brings judicial peace with God. We are declared righteous. When God looks at us, he's, the, the, the record that, that stands before him in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, when he thinks about us, his children, is pardoned. Pardoned, right? Y'all know what a pardon is. I mean, it's, it's as, it, it, as if you've never done anything. A pardon means your offense is erased from the record. That's the point that he's making here. That our we have been justified. We have been made. We've been. We are at peace with God. Just as someone who, in relation to the state, has committed an offense, and therefore the state holds them accountable, puts them in jail, or whatever has you know accountability. When they're pardoned, they they're now at peace with the state. The state's no longer after them for that offense. That's where we are. That's our right relationship with God. We are pardoned. We are judicially at peace with God. And so we remember here that, and so that tells us that Paul in this section is talking to and about Christians here. And, there's since, and, the, and this is past tense. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we therefore have, that's right, that's, you know, uh, present tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the reality of who we are as born-again Christians, how we relate to God and ultimately to the world, as we'll see here, comes because of our justification. It colors everything about us. We, because we're made right with God, we cannot look at the world without seeing it through that prism. And we shouldn't. We do at times. But we should judge everything through that prism that God is for us and we have peace with Him that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Paul, in verse 2, Paul transitions to the practical results of living in light of the gospel. He says, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, once again, present tense, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so it's not just we're just made at peace with God, therefore we live peacefully. There's an action here. Those who are made right with God rejoice in the glory of God. We can't be made right with God. We can't understand our sinfulness. Remember in Romans chapter 3, he said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is done good. No, no one's righteous. No one can stand on their own righteousness and say, I've earned the favor with God. For we all deserve condemnation. So understanding that rightly, when the gospel comes to effect in our lives, when it comes to the reality, and it changes us and makes us right with God through the work of Christ, our response isn't just to go, well, thankfully I'm made right. It's to rejoice in the glory of God. 
We don't go, I was wise enough to understand that, glory to me. No, we say, I couldn't figure this out. I was running from God, he rescued me, therefore praise to the glory of God. That's the right response of the gospel and that's what drives us for the rest of our lives. It colors everything about us. That's the prism through which we have to see life as those who have been made right with God through the work of Christ on our behalf. That's what Paul's, that's the foundation that Paul is laying here and in, this, in, the, in the first two verses here. But in verses three and four, he tells us this peace even extends to our sufferings. We go, okay, I've been made right with God. I can rejoice in God as long as everything's going well for me. As long as everything's at peace and everything's hunky-dory and everybody loves me and I love everything's at peace, life's just smooth sailing, then I can rejoice in the glory of God. But Paul doesn't let us get away with that here. The scripture doesn't let us get away with that. The scripture comes to us and now it says, not only when things are right, when you're kind of in that honeymoon phase with God where everything's new and fresh and good and you're just glorying in the, the newfound you know, peace that you have with God. He says, no, even when real life happens and sufferings come, even in that moment, we're to recognize the glory of God and sing his praises. That's what he's getting at here in, in this. And uh, let's, look, let's read verse 3 and 4 again. He says, not only that, that in the grace in which we stand, we rejoice in hope of glory. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because there's a purpose to them, we're going to see. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope that doesn't put us to shame, we'll, we'll see here. Uh, I don't think, you know, when we talk about how there's a purpose in our suffering, and God works in our suffering to make us more righteous and more holy, that he works through that to sanctify us. At times I feel like we become masochists and we go, okay, give me the suffering so I can get, some of you giggle, but I've seen it. We want to wallow in our sufferings thinking that that's going to conjure up God's blessings on a greater level. But that's not it. God isn't saying here, accept your sufferings. We can pray that our sufferings go away. If there's relief from our sufferings, maybe there are medical issues, we can go to the doctor and say, can I have relief from my sufferings? That's all fine. But we trust God even in the midst of this. We recognize that these things come from him for a purpose. God is at work in the midst of our suffering to accomplish a purpose. It's his purpose, and it's not that we're going to always understand what that purpose is. Most of the times in our sufferings, we're not going to understand it. And often our reaction to suffering is to scream that it's unfair. Well, I don't deserve this. I've been made right with God. I, I, why am I suffering? We see that in the Psalms. David and others crying out, God, why are my enemies coming against me? Why are all these things happening. We'll see that in the comments when we look back at Psalm 38 again. Um, you know, so we're, we're not called to anything that God doesn't require. So we remember in the midst of that, when we're thinking that it's unfair, when our, when our response is, God, this is unfair, we have to remember that God sent his only son into the world to do what? To suffer. So God doesn't call us to do anything that he himself isn't willing to take upon himself. So Christ's suffering gives us hope that there's purpose in our suffering because there was purpose in Christ's suffering for us. It's through his suffering that we get peace with God. 
And he can work through as well through our suffering to help us have greater peace ultimately with himself. So we're not called to anything that God doesn't require of his own son. And, and because the son has been through those things, he can help us in our sufferings. They're not foreign to him. So when we talk about rejoicing and suffering, it's not the sufferings themselves that cause us to rejoice. It's the fact that we trust that even in those moments God's at work with us, there's a purpose. They're producing something that comes from God within us. And so this means that rejoicing may not join suffering until down the road. You, you get what I'm saying? We're called to rejoice in all things, even in our sufferings. But it may be that our sufferings are so acute at times that we can't get to the rejoicing. And you go, well, do we beat ourselves up at that point? No, you're already getting beat up by your suffering. Pursue it. Keep moving towards rejoicing in that. That's the command. Even in the midst of your sufferings, even when it seems so dark, you can't find a way out. Look for the light. Run to the light. Go to Jesus. Rejoice and ask him, as you're ask, even as you're asking him to relieve your sufferings, that he would give you the ability to rejoice in the midst of your sufferings. Where does that come from? It comes from being transformed by the grace of God. That we have been made right with God. Uh, you know, we down the road we may be able to look back and see what the suffering produced in us and give thankfulness at that point. But we fight that direction even in the midst of our sufferings, even in the midst of all the things that are going on in our lives. You know, it's been said that God will never give you more than you can handle, and we've told you before that's just not true. God hasn't promised to not give you more than you can handle. He's promised not to give you more than He can handle. And so when we're in the midst of our sufferings and we go, I can't handle this, you're probably right. We can't handle a lot of these things, but we trust that we are the Son of God, the one who can handle all these things, who is sovereign over all these things. He's gracious and kind and merciful, even in the midst of our suffering. And also, you know, at times we have friends that are suffering. Someone around us is suffering, and we want to help them, right? We, we want to enter into their suffering with them and offer them some help and comfort. How do we do that? Well, one, I would say pray for them, as we would hope people pray for us in the midst of our suffering, that uh, they would you know, maintain their joy in the midst of those things, that they'll find joy in the midst of their suffering, relief in the midst of their suffering, all those things. But let me give you some practical advice. When your friend's hurting and the whole world seems to be falling down upon them and they're in the midst of the darkness of their soul, that's not the time to go to them and go, well, you know Romans 5 says that you need to rejoice in the midst of your sufferings. You know what that does? That feels guilt on top of the suffering. Walk with them. Help them walk to the light without beating them up for not rejoicing in that moment. Even though our hope, and we can pray that they will rejoice in that moment, we don't hold it over their head and go, well, as if the lack of rejoicing is prolonging the suffering or something. That's not how God works. We're to rejoice in the midst of that and with patience and kindness. I think the better thing is to take the advice of Romans 12, 15, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's better in that moment. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weep with those who are weeping. Let the Holy Spirit do his work to move them from weeping to rejoicing over time, as he does with us over time. The story of God's people historically is a story of suffering in the wilderness, being restored to the presence of God. We think about Moses leading the people around in circles for 40 years. A whole generation dies 
before they enter the promised land. That's part of our story. We think about the exile in Babylon, 50 years before Nehemiah finally got permission to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the city of God, where the people could come back and, and have a home again. And we think about all these stories. The Old Testament is just over and over and over with stories of exile and redemption and exile and redemption and exile and redemption. And we feel somewhat removed from that as believers here in the New Testament. And, but yet that's our story. That is our history as well. For we are the people of God. And the, the story of the people of God historically is the story of our people. The story of us. We're connected to, to those things historically. And so as, our, as children of God, this, their story is our story. So we should expect that God will also lead us into types of wilderness. We saw this, we were looking at this in Sunday school this morning from Hebrews 3 and 4, that there is a wilderness that we will oftentimes, God will call us to in the midst of the promised land, in the midst of being a part of that, moving towards the promised land. There are times that are going to feel like promised land. There are times that are going to feel like wilderness. But God's at work in all of those moments as we move towards the glory to which he's, he's carrying us. So just like he was with the Israelites in the wilderness, he's also with us. He promises to never leave us, to never forsake us, to take us all the way home. We find comfort and joy in, in that process and that promise that to, to carry us all the way. And so we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. Jesus told us that in this life we will have many troubles, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We go, wait, no, peace is blessed, right? And he says, well, that doesn't, yeah, but that doesn't mean that suffering is not also blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Ah, so now it widens. Not just Christ has suffered. The prophets suffered. The apostles suffered. Jesus suffered. We know Paul suffered. We can go throughout history and see all the suffering of the people of God, and we go, what? We take comfort from that. We're not alone in our suffering. We're actually in good company with all those who before us have endured suffering under the sovereign rule of God. You know, some would counter the fact that, you know, with the fact that we're told that Jesus promises us an abundant life, an abundant life to all who come for him. And he does. We go, well, which is it? Is it suffering or is it abundant life? Well, there's a sense in which we can say yes. Maybe an abundant life through suffering. But with the reason we struggle with those two things and tend to grasp on to one or the other is, look, naturally, in our natural minds, when we hear, God has come, I've come to give you abundant life, we immediately start defining abundant according to our own wishes and longings and desires. Abundant must mean peaceful living, great relationships, a big house, fancy car, a good job, and kids who are obedient, and you know, husband and wife who love and respect each other. And we start defining all these things, and we may or may not get those things, but we tend to think this means abundance, right? That that 
we define it according to our own desires, not his desires. The abundant life that the Bible pictures is a life that's full of peace in the midst of life, in the midst of struggles, not, as, not an ease and escape from the realities of life. Look, we know that telling people everything's going to be perfect and fine can make you famous, can get you lots of people to buy your books and lots of people to watch you preach on TV. And, you know, that, but preaching the reality that this life holds suffering doesn't win those things. It doesn't get you book deals most of the time. It doesn't get you TV audiences and massive auditoriums. But, you know, it, it doesn't bring audiences who want their ears tickled with promises that Jesus will give you the American dream of rich and comfort, riches and comfort. But I believe that Jesus tells us these things, told us these things, told us to expect suffering, told us that the righteous are persecuted, and that to expect those sorts of things. He told us these things because in the midst of real life, we need real comfort and real peace, not the things, not the comfort and peace that we think the things of this world will bring us. We need something beyond that. Because he tells us later on, those things are all going to burn in the end. They're going to hold no meaning for us at the end of the day. But the righteousness of God given to us by Christ and the presence of Christ with us in the midst of our suffering can carry us into a peace that's deeper than any of all those things of this world will ever bring us. Doesn't mean those things are all evil. But if we think those things are what are the fulfillment of the promises of God for us, we're going to be let down in the end. Because the promises of God are deeper and greater than those things. The promises and presence of God with us brings us peace even when all those things are gone. Because it's greater than any of those things. And so Jesus, knows, knowing this, tells us uh, that he understands and then he promises that he will be with us through the very end of the age. His promise to those that might suffer is not that the, the suffering will be avoided, but he will be with us in the midst of the suffering, that he will carry us all the way home, that we'll never be alone, that he will persevere with us to the very end. And he promises that he will be at work in us even through the suffering. So what does this suffering produce in us? Well, Paul tells us here in Romans 5 that suffering, uh, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So what is endurance? It's patient, single-mindedness. It's getting through. That suffering focuses, on, focuses us in on the things that are most important. When we come into suffering, ultimately we're able to endure because we realize that it helps us see that those things that we thought were so important don't actually give us life. Oftentimes, we might actually suffer because of those things. We become broke and suffer financially because we've overextended ourselves trying to get those things that we think are going to bring us peace. They end up wrecking our lives, as an example. You know, we, we think that a peaceful home is going to, going to bring ultimate and lasting peace in our lives, and so we try to force peace instead of dealing with the real issues that are going on in the relationships and the hearts of the people in that home. And it ends up breeding bitterness over time because we're trying to suck life out of the relationships instead of actually entering into those relationships and walking together. I don't know if I made sense there. I feel like I went in a circle. You know, but my point is God gives us these good things and we try to get life and meaning out of all of them. Instead of trusting that even in the midst of the hardships, sometimes in abundance, sometimes in lack, that God brings us peace and joy. 
in the midst of all these things. And so he says suffering produces endurance. It helps us hang on to the things that matter the most. Endurance produces character, proven worth to be tested. You know, like a football team that has difficulties during the season. They have to get over their enemies. They barely make it in the playoffs, and then they make a run in the playoffs. Why? Because they've learned from hardships along the way, and it's toughened them up. It's made them stronger for that run down the road to face greater obstacles. I know that's a cheesy football illustration, but in life, that is like that. The hard things help prepare us for the things that are coming. And so God builds our character, none of those things. And so, you know, no one says that the easiest moments in their life form their character. When you ask someone, tell me about a forming moment in your life, something that's foundational, something that's really changed you and how you viewed the life, your life, whatever. Almost always people go to a moment of hardship, not a moment of ease. Why? Because those things define, it, define us. They teach us. They mold us and shape us. And they help us know that even when things are awful, the whole world's not falling down around us. It's not the end of the world because things are hard. God carries us through those things. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Suffering exposes our idols for what they really are. They're hoaxes. And, and it builds our confidence in the one who can give us real and lasting hope in the midst of the storms of life. You know, I, I told you before, probably, I, I, found it, I found it massively interesting that in the early caves where Christians who were under persecution were hiding out, the drawings that they find on the wall are drawings of anchors. That was the early sign of Christianity. And, you know, today it's a cross or, you know, one of those ichthus fishes that you put on your car, you know, that says, oh, I, I belong to the fishermen. I belong to Jesus. Well, in those days, it was an anchor. Because they were sure that this hope that they were putting in was an anchor to which they could attach their soul that would hold steady in the storms of life. That Christ, the gospel, is an anchor. That when the storms come, we have something to hold on to. When everything else blows away, there's one thing that's not going away. Jesus says, I am with you to the very end of the age. And so the gospel comes into our life, produces it was even at times bringing suffering, and that suffering brings endurance and character and hope. But he says it's a hope in verse five that does not put us to shame. Think about that's the issue of shame. Um, shame. It's translated disappoint there in some other translations. There's a connection between shame and disappointment because when we put our hopes in things and ultimately let us down, we're ashamed about those things. You think about. The, uh, the sense that uh, maybe a bride who's left at an altar, she would be disappointed, one, that her betrothed didn't show up. But she's also ashamed, full of shame, because all of her friends and family have gathered before to witness her disappointment. She's been let down in the midst of a party. And there, there's a connection there between shame and disappointment. That's why those, those can be translated, the word can be translated either way because shame and disappointment are so closely connected. And what happens is when we get in the midst of our sufferings, if we only look at our sufferings, ultimately we feel ashamed because we're going we're gonna to trick ourselves or tell ourselves this is something that we've caused and some, some sufferings we do cause. But when we look at those things alone in that light, we feel shame because we think we're ultimately defined by that suffering. 
But the scripture tells us that we don't have to be defined by that suffering. When we trust in Christ, he's at work producing endurance and character and hope that does not put us to shame because he's at work in it. And there's a purpose there even in the suffering. And so there's the, we think about the power of shame today. Shame paralyzes us. Um, you know, guilt and shame are related, but they're not the same. You remember the story of the, uh, the, the Scarlet Letter? Uh, the, the main character there, Hester Friend, was forced to wear a red A throughout her life to, you know, to, to remind people of her adultery. So they gave her a, a scarlet A to wear throughout her life. But she wasn't wearing that A. They didn't have her wear that because she was guilty. She was. But that wasn't why they had her wear the A. They had her wear the A because they wanted her to bear her shame. It was to help everybody else to remember her guilt. And of course, it reminded her as well. Every time she wore it, every time she interacted with anyone, they couldn't get past it because they had forced her to wear her shame upon herself. That's, that's the shame. That, that's what the gospel protects us from, from being defined by our sufferings, by our guilt, by our shame sorts. Shame comes from different places. Ed Welch, who uh, is a writer, a counselor, um, a professor at uh, the, um, he at? the event, uh, um, at, West, at, West, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and uh, the Council on, um, the Christian Council and Education Foundation, um, the CCEF with David Pallison and those guys. Ed Welch has written a treasure, tro- treasure trove of books on this subject. Um, on, on guilt and shame and how they define us and how they hinder us in our walk with Christ and our relationships with others and all those sorts of things. So valuable. If you're struggling, there's some, some great resources there. Just look for Ed Welch. Read whatever he wrote. It'll help you. Um, here's what he says. He says, shame is the sense that you are unacceptable. Shame is the sense within yourself that you're unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. So something you did, something you that was done to you, or even just being associated with something uh, that was that was done that's unglorious, I guess we would say. He says, you feel exposed and humiliated. He said, or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced. We're to live under grace. Shame brings disgrace. So it distorts the reality of where we're living when we live under the shame and whatnot. And so it brings a sense of disgrace to us. And he says, you are to strengthen like you are disgraced because maybe you actually acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human, meaning not honoring the, uh, the image of God with which you were created. That's what he's getting at there. And he says, and to make it even stronger, and there were witnesses. And so you were disgraced. You acted less than human, so maybe you did something. You were treated as if you were less than human, bring shame because of what others think about you. Or just you were associated with something that happened. You aren't necessarily guilty, but your association with it brings guilt upon your life. He says, and there were witnesses. Okay, so what what we're saying there is simple things like watching the news can trigger shame in our lives particularly in these days. You know, maybe, uh, you know, th- maybe things have been long buried. Maybe you struggled for years to get over 
being abused by someone and then you turn on the news and they're talking about abuse and you go, wow, I haven't thought about that in years, but I feel that shame. Maybe you were wrongly accused of something one time and you've finally gotten over the pain of being wrongly accused. And so you turn on the news and you see someone that may have been wrongly accused and you go, wow, that opens up those wounds. It's fresh again. We're reminded that we're associated with something, whether it's true or not. That it opens us up to shame. And so we're in a season of life here where lots of people are stepping up and going, me too. I'm not talking about a movement of me too, but just recognizing that there's hurt and pain in my life. And so there's an opportunity for the gospel to be at work in and through the church as we come around people who have been who've been abused, who've been wrongly accused, who've been whatever the pain and hurt is and suffering and shame that's happened throughout the ages and say, there's comfort for you in the midst of this. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings comfort here. You know, we know these things are true. When we think about the life of David, we know that David, in a sense, was guilty of acting untowards to a lady. Remember, he used his power to take advantage of Bathsheba. So he's guilty in one sense of being, on some level, an abuser. But yet, at the same time, we read Psalm 38 this morning where David says, I have been wrongly accused. God, would you take down my accusers? So it may be true in the same life. You know, and so we recognize that this has been an, an issue. It's not just an issue for our time. It's an issue for every time. And so is shame. Being shamed, being ashamed has always been a part of human life. You know, but it may not be traumatic things that cause us to feel shame. It may just be a sense that we aren't worthy. We carry shame. So how do we identify shame? Well, Ed Welch helps us with some of this. He says, here's some good questions to ask to see if maybe you are dealing with some shame in your life, but you don't even recognize it. He says, first, do you ever lie about who you are? Meaning, do you exaggerate on a resume or embellish a story about something in your life? Why? Because you're ashamed of who you really are, you've got to make yourself look better than you are. Because there's a sense of shame in who we, how we view ourselves. It says it's likely we're afraid that the truth isn't enough. And the root of that is shame and disappointment in who we are compared to who we hoped we would be or what we wish others would see us as. He goes further, he says, do you ever name drop? Hope to get a little glory by association, he says. you know. Um, and so he says, the question is, what do you want to hide? What do you need outside of yourself? What are you trying to hide that's real about you that, that you're ashamed for people to see? Ed Welch says that answering that question is the shortcut to identifying shame in our lives. But he goes on, he says, some of us will even feel, we feel ashamed because of the threat of being shamed on Judgment Day. We may be getting away with hiding shame on earth and hiding who we really are on earth, but we also know that we dread standing before God one day because He knows the truth about who we really are. We're deathly afraid that He's going to call us out and embarrass us. We're afraid of being exposed to sinners. But yet the gospel gives us freedom in that, right? Because the gospel says, admit that you're a sinner. Those who confess their sins, Jesus hears you and offers you forgiveness. So as Christians, we don't have to hide who we really are. We can actually say, you know, you're right. And oftentimes it may be that we go, well, you're, 
partially right, or maybe you're wrong, but we can admit the truth. And someone says, well, you're guilty of this. You can go, well, I'm not guilty of that, but I am guilty of this. Or maybe sometimes they say, hey, we, you're guilty of this, and you go, oh, if you only knew I'm actually guilty of this. But Christ has forgiven me. Would you help me fight for righteousness in my life? Because I want to be holy. But I'm ashamed on some level of who I am. So can we help each other in those moments? Because our tendency is to come before people and say, I've heard this about you. You should be ashamed. Instead of saying, I heard this about you. Can I walk with you in the midst of this? Can I help you? Can we go to Jesus together? It's going to look different in every situation. But instead of beating each other up, we can go towards the cross with this. Because oftentimes it's things we can't even control. It isn't things we've done. It's things that have been done to us. Suffering that we can't control. It may even be a physical ailment that we go, that brings me shame. Maybe it distorts my looks or makes me weak or... And we're ashamed of that. We need to be reminded that those things don't define us. If we are in Christ, then His love, His justification defines who we are. These things are rooted in Him. Think about the good news of Jesus. Jesus loves us just the way we are. He covers our shame. Think about the garden. What was the reality of Adam and Eve in the garden before the sin? Naked and unashamed. They were just who they were, all out there. Nothing to hide. Sin comes in the world, and what's their first instinct? Cover up. They went and covered up. They start, they felt their shame. Sin brought shame. And so they immediately cover up and hide from God. And so what does God do? God doesn't come, does God come to them in the midst of their shame and go, I'm just gonna stomp you out. You should be ashamed. He doesn't do that. God comes to them, confronts them, talks to them about their sin, honestly. But at the end of that story, what do we see? We see God making them clothes to help cover their shame. Signifying that ultimately Jesus is going to be sacrificed to cover our shame. God doesn't avoid them in the midst of their shame. He comes to them, embraces them, and covers them. He gives them hope in the midst of their shame. This is true for everyone who trusts in the promises of God to save them. This comes to us through the death of Christ. Jesus being hung naked on a cross, beaten, bloodied, rejected, and ultimately dead. Ashamed. Or, or shamed. He's not ashamed. That's something we hold of ourselves. He was in a sense, the world tried to shame him by causing his death. And they were successful in causing his death, but he doesn't get ashamed. He triumphed over these things. He rose from the dead. He gives us, and his victory gives us hope. The one who knows everything about us didn't reject us, but he loved us, embraced us, died for us, was brought to shame for us, to give us new life. That's the beauty and hope of the gospel. Romans 5, if we keep reading, says, for while, in verse 6, says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
What does that do? It takes those things that we're ashamed of and it says, I can have, I can praise and glorify God because even in the midst of my shame, He loved me. He cared for me. He loved me so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for my sin. His Son became shamed to take away my shame. You see the freedom in that? The joy and the beauty of that? So we can escape the... And can we escape the shame that we feel? That's the thing. Is there hope for us? Yes. The hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fear of shame is chased out of our lives by understanding the character and grace of God, by knowing Jesus and the power of the gospel. Some of the most powerful moments in the life of Jesus are when he's ministering to those who are full of shame. Remember in Matthew 8, he comes up to a leper. Y'all know what a leper was. He had a skin disease. He was required to walk through the city if he wasn't in public places and basically yell, I'm uh, untouchable, untouchable. Untouchable, 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 so that the crowd would part and no one would become unclean by touching him because they would become ceremonially unclean if they touch him. You know what Jesus does? He walks up and touches him. Why? Because Jesus is covering his shame. Think about the woman who had been bleeding for years upon years upon years. Same thing. Her, her bleeding caused her to be ceremonially unclean. But when she comes and touches Jesus' hymn, longing for healing that she's heard can come through this guy, and he turns around and realizes this unclean woman has touched her, he doesn't shame her. What does he do? Your faith has made you righteous. He embraces her. He takes her shame. He doesn't leave her in her shame. Jesus was known as a man who would touch the unclean. The Pharisees were constantly chiding him for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, also known as the targets of their shaming. And yet Jesus kept embracing the outcast and, rebu and rebuking the religious people who thought they were so holy because they could point out how everyone else had failed to measure up. And Jesus comes into our weary lives and he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, full of shame, full of regret, full of feeling less than human, come unto me and I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. Jesus invites us to come as we are with all of our shameful stuff, stuff that we are afraid to let anyone else know. He says, come unto me with all of your burdens and I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. The world may beat us up. We may come to church and get beat up. People who are insensitive don't care. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. Don't figure out that stuff and then come to me. He says, get up all your burdens and bring them to the cross. Come just as you are. I love you just as you are. And look, when we live in that freedom, knowing that we're fully accepted by Jesus, guess what we can do? We can take our eyes off of ourselves and our own shame and our own burden and turn and look at the world around us and say, okay, how can I love people? How can I relate to people rightly? What's at the heart of our relationships? At the heart of our relationships is being made right with God. Because when we understand that we are right with God, there's freedom and joy to even take risk in relationships. You may hurt me. I may expose myself to you. I may confess my sins before you and you may shame me. 
And I'm not going to pretend that doesn't hurt. But I know that I can go to one who doesn't. I know I can go to one who says, I know that you're a sinner. I know about even more, even deeper stuff than you even realize about yourself. If you knew everything that God knows about, if we knew everything God knows about us, our shame would increase in a temporal sense, in our flesh. But God says, I know all that stuff and more. And even then, while you were still sinners, my father demonstrated his love by sending me to die for you. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He came for that purpose. To free us. Romans 8.1 says, now, now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we rest in the power of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Would you help us to lay down our burdens, to not carry our shame, to trust you with it? Whether that means being courageous to talk to someone about it or confessing our sins to someone that can help us, maybe even talking to a counselor to work through things that maybe are deep-rooted in our lives. Would you give us the courage and the freedom to actually say, I'm a sinner who needs help, and I'm ashamed of that, some of these things. But I trust that God's at work here, producing endurance and character and hope and not shame. Most of all, would you help us to run to you in those moments when we feel guilty and ashamed? Would you help us to remember that there's healing in your touch, that there's that, that we can be like the leper, the woman who is bleeding, and know that you are for us and not against us. You're ready to receive us, not to shame us, not to heap shame upon us, but that we can come and rest in the healing that the gospel brings to all, the, all of us who put our hope and trust in you. Help us to do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.